0: He paid it all upon the cross No longer bound by sin or with eternal loss He took my sin and washed it away When I was immersed in that watery grave I heard that gospel call because He paid it all
1: Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Been There, Read That podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Batty, and this program is brought to you by ChristianResearcher.com. If you go to ChristianResearcher.com, you'll find a number of the books that we discuss and recommend in this podcast. If you're a regular listener of the program, you know that what we do here is we discuss books. And what I want to do today is introduce our listening audience to some bad authors, What I mean by that is some guys that you need to be aware of, their positions, and what they write about, because many of them are very popular, especially in particular fields of study, and you need to be aware of the baggage that comes with these guys. I do not recommend these guys. In fact, I warn them, warn people about these guys. That's what we're doing this episode. It's warning you about some bad authors, some very, I believe, dangerous authors. I have a number of different ones that we want to go through, and I'll start off with two very popular authors. The first is John MacArthur. John MacArthur is a very dangerous author, I believe, because he permeates his writing with both Calvinism and premillennialism. Now, MacArthur comes across at first as being a good guy because he takes a high view of Scripture and is very outspoken for the full plenary inspiration of Scripture. In that regards, he's a good guy. But all along the way, he works in Calvinism and premillennialism. I remember a while back I was reading a book called Against Calvinism by Roger Olson, and as he was talking about uh, predominant and influential Calvinists, he pointed out that the two most influential Calvinists, in his opinion, were John MacArthur and John Piper. And we'll talk about Piper momentarily, but right now we're focusing on MacArthur. And one of the reasons he said that MacArthur was a dangerous guy was because in everything that he wrote, He tried to subtly slip in and sometimes very overtly advance the cause of Calvinism, and I would second that with the cause of premillennialism. I'll give you a couple of examples of what I'm talking about. Uh, MacArthur wrote a book called Slave, and it's defining the Christian life of discipleship in terms of slavery, and the first half of the book is really good and really convicting on the topic of the Christian slavery, or us being slaves of Christ. But in the second half of the book, he goes full-on hardcore Calvinism. And that's how most of his books are. Part of it will be really good, and then the second part, or mixed in, there will be just incredible depths of Calvinism being taught. And so it really destroys the recommendability of the book. I would not recommend people even pick it up and read it for the good parts, uh, by and large. Another book that I read of his one time, uh, part of it, I didn't make it all through this book either, but it was the parables. I thought, you know, the parables, this will be a pretty safe field of study, even for a guy like MacArthur, but I was wrong. Uh, He's taking some of the simple parables of the Lord and he's infusing them with Calvinism, and when he's not infusing them with Calvinism, he's talking about the kingdom coming in the second reign of Christ, in the thousand year reign, and so he takes parables regarding the kingdom and turns them into a future premillennial reign passage, and thus it's very dangerous material. I would strongly caution our listening audience about MacArthur's material. Uh second in line with him is John Piper. One of the things Roger Olson points out in Against Calvinism is that Piper is a unique sort of Calvinist. He is a five point Calvinist, but he has gone to kind of extremes. You know, used to in debates that you would read about Calvinism People who were against Calvinism would accuse Calvinists of believing that God created sin. This would become a controversial topic, and the Calvinists would say, No, 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 we don't believe that God created sin at all, and they would try to wiggle out of that. And that was always a a central focus of debates on Calvinism. Well, John Piper has embraced the concept that God created sin. He says that God created sin in order to form a dark backdrop upon which the brilliance of the gospel can shine forth, or which the brilliancy of God's salvation and predestination of the elect can be saved. And uh, Piper is, he's taking Calvinism all the way to its logical conclusions. He's causing a big stir even amongst Calvinists. They are rejecting some of what he takes, but I'll be fair with, with towards Piper. He has fully embraced the the ramifications of Calvinism. If you're going to believe in Calvinism and you're going to believe that God predestined some souls for salvation, others for damnation before they were even created, then you have to take it to its logical conclusion that God is sovereign over all things, even sin, and that he created sin, and Piper is embracing that. I say that to say Piper is gaining a lot of Popularity. A lot of people quote after Piper and they don't really r- realize who Piper is and what Piper fully believes. So I would caution you strongly about his materials and his, his uh, sermon materials as well. Third guy along these lines is dead now, but was quite popular for a while. His name is John Stott. And John Stott is a staunch Calvinist as well. I picked up a book of his a while back called Christ in Conflict, and the premise of the book was that whenever Jesus came to earth and he began to preach the gospel, he was in conflict, intentionally so, with his surroundings, and he didn't back down from a fight. He, in fact, instigated several occasions where there was mass discussion involved. And so I thought this would be a very interesting read. I've heard about Stott before, haven't ever read anything by him, and I'm interested to see I made it about half, maybe two-thirds of the way through the book, and I just put it down because it was so permeated with Calvinism, uh, it it was pointless to to go through any further. I've mentioned this several times on the program. Brother Ron Quarter is famous for saying, all books contain chicken and bones. And what he means by that is there's going to be some good parts, and then there's going to be a lot of bones or baggage, and you want to find books that have more meat than bones. And John Stott's uh, Christ in Conflict has way, way more bones than it does meat. And being introduced to Stott, I've discovered he is a Calvinism to the core. He believes very strongly and advocates on every opportunity possible for total hereditary depravity. He also is a big advocate of what we call the illumination of the Holy Spirit. In other words, because a person is totally depraved, they could never pick up the Bible and understand it. And so you have to have a direct operation come upon the person, not only to change their nature, but to open up the Word of God to them. This is a contradiction of what's taught in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, there's a contrast between the natural man and the spiritual man. The spiritual man, in context, is an apostle, and an apostle was given divine inspiration to reveal the gospel to the world. And Paul's point is, the natural man, or someone operating without divine revelation, can never know the mind of God unless he reveals it. And so God chose to reveal his mind to the spiritual man, to the apostles, and the apostles revealed it or made known the mystery so that it is no longer a mystery. And what Stott actually is arguing is that God has not revealed his will or his word to mankind. He has still kept it hidden, and only those who have a direct operation of the Spirit can understand it, and that's just simply false doctrine. God has revealed his word through supernatural men, the apostles, so that we— that is, the unnatural men, can understand the revelation as given by God. Either his will has been revealed, as Paul declares that he revealed it, or it is still hidden. And Piper and MacArthur and Stott are all arguing that God's mystery is hidden from those who have not had a direct operation of the Holy Spirit, also known as irresistible grace, coming upon them to change their nature and enlighten them in matters of salvation. Very dangerous material and content that permeates all three writers' background. Okay, I'm going to get off of the Calvinism uh, train, if you will, and we'll go a little bit of a different direction. There's two authors who have written primarily in the Old Testament that are very dangerous and you need to be aware of as well. The first one is his name is John Golden Gay. And when I first came into contact with Golden Gay, I was also introduced to a guy by the name of Green Goldsworthy. And it was hard for me in my mind to keep the two uh, distinct, if you will, to remember which one's the good guy and which one's the bad guy. Goldsworthy is worthy to be read. Green Goldsworthy is a good guy. He's a good writer and does some good job painting big picture of the Bible. He believes in full inspiration. Pretty good writer. John Goldengay is not a good guy. When you think of uh, John Goldengay... You think about Mandalay Bay. That's how I do it in my mind. Mandalay Bay is a big casino resort out in Las Vegas. And whenever you go there, one, you're sitting and going there, two, you're risking a lot going there in your money. And that's kind of how I feel about going to John Golden Gay's book. You're risking a lot when you pick him up off the shelf. And he believes in a lot of sinful concepts. I, I was introduced to him with a commentary on Isaiah and I began to realize very quickly, John Goldengate has a totally radically different view of the Old Testament. He does not believe that Old Testament writers could envision the Messiah coming. In other words, we turn to Isaiah 53 very commonly, and you read Isaiah 53, and it's as if you are sitting at the feet of the cross because there is predictive quality in that chapter that describes beautifully exactly what happened when Jesus died on the cross. John Goldengate denies that. He denies that the Old Testament was able to predict aspects concerning Jesus' life. He rejects the concept of typology because in typology you have historical facts that are anticipating things that would be coming later down the road as the anti-type, and so he has a very different view of inspiration than we do. He does not believe that the Old Testament writers had the ability to predict future events and certainly not the Messiah. I find that interesting because he's written a ton, I mean a whole lot of material in the Old Testament, various parts of it. He's written a biblical theology where you're trying to paint the, the big picture of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, and yet he denies the concept that the Old Testament anticipated the new. Another guy to be aware of who writes a lot in the Old Testament is a guy named Walter Brueggemann. Walter Brueggemann is a postmodernist. And what that means is he does not believe in absolute truth. He believes everything is relative and that you can't say that something is absolutely right or wrong, which amazes me. Uh, if, if you don't really believe that the Bible can be fully understood, as does Brueggemann, I don't know why you would write as many books as he has. When you pick up Walter Brueggemann, he casts doubt on everything and Rather than bringing clarity to the situation, he muddles and confuses and has a very poor view of inspiration. So that's a name that you will come across. You'll see him in a lot of footnotes. He is not a good guy. Uh, Save your money. Don't waste your money on that. Another guy I've heard several brethren quote from in the past, and he has some good quotes, but he's a really dangerous guy because of his view of inspiration, is a guy by the name of Robert Altair. Robert Altair was famous cuz he wrote a book called The Art of Biblical Narrative. He's also written a book called The Art of Biblical Poetry. He's written a book on the Psalms. Uh, he's written quite a bit on the Old Testament in general, but his Art of Biblical Narrative was a monumental book. It it opened up the way of biblical research towards narrative criticism, which is a good thing, I believe. But the way that Alter went about it uh, is is wrong. He believes that He doesn't believe in full inspiration of the Bible. He believes that there are a lot of mistakes contained within the Bible and that you have to be aware of how the Bible's telling the story to get the story that was true to the individual, not that was historically accurate or how it actually occurred. He thinks the Old Testament is just full of interesting stories, and so you look at stories for the sake of being stories. You know, there's something to be said for looking at Bible narrative through a narrative lens and understanding how the story is being told. That's true, that's valid, that's very important and critical. And he's influenced people to start thinking down those lines. But you cannot approach the biblical narratives as just good stories that do not contain divine inspiration. That's where he becomes very dangerous, and he he has a very low view of the Scriptures. Essentially, he thinks they're interesting stories, and since they're interesting stories, he's interested in discussing them as stories, but does not view the Bible as divine inspiration. So be very aware of who Robert Alter is in terms of narrative criticism. Changing gears a little bit, but somewhat on the same line, there are two writers who write in the field of apologetics quite a bit, especially within the book of Genesis. One, his name is Hugh Ross, and the other is C. John Collins. And these are two guys that you need to be aware of they are not helpful, fellows. Hugh Ross has been one of the main advocates for quite a while of theistic evolution. He begins arguing that the days of Genesis 1 are not literal days, they're eons of time, that we can harmonize evolution with the Christian outlook or the concept that God created everything ex nihilo. And Ross, he's gained a lot of followers, he's made the position popular, but theistic evolution is fundamentally not coherent with the rest of the Bible. You can't believe that God created man in his own image and also believe that man came from frogs and tadpoles and whatnot. The two concepts do not mix. What it's doing is it's kind of it's it's viewing the biblical position of literal days of creation as being antiquated, not in line with scientific research and findings, and so it's trying to find a way to harmonize what the Bible has written with what science continues to quote-unquote discover. I think that's a terrible approach to take to the Bible, that you're going to cast off the Bible and view it through a skeptical lens and embrace science over the Bible. But that's what he's doing, essentially, and theistic evolution has been uh, advocated through him and, and advanced quite a bit through his research and writing. Another guy, his name is John Collins or C. John Collins, whatever the initial stands for. Uh, He's advanced this concept of approaching the book of Genesis through a a literary literary analysis of Genesis 1. And so in other words, we shouldn't be understanding the days of Genesis 1 as actual days. They're actually just functioning as a part of a literary form. You got to consider the genre of what's going on in Genesis 1. And the whole point is that uh, Genesis one is not in conflict with evolution. We can hold both and be, you know, Christians at the same time. I reject his thesis entirely. There, there's obviously there's literary aspects of any piece of writing. I don't think that should be ignored in Genesis any more than any other book of the Bible. But conflicting with what the Bible has actually written to try to harmonize that again with science—that's the purpose behind it—is in my opinion, not even worth considering. So I I would just encourage you to avoid Collins and Ross when it comes to the uh, creation-evolution discussion of things. They're not going to be helpful. Uh, Another author that you need to be aware of, again, this one has to do with the Old Testament. He had a major impact in Old Testament research for about 20 or 30 years, though most people are beginning to see the light of day and leave him behind. His name was Julius Wellhausen. Julius Wellhausen came up with what was known as the Documentary Hypothesis. And what he was advocating was that the books of the Old Testament were not written by the authors that they claimed to have been written by or at the times in which they claimed to have been written. In other words, he would claim that most of the books of the Pentateuch were not written until during or after the Babylonian captivity, and they were written by scribes or people who were putting facts together, and then they would claim to have been Moses who was writing these things down. It attacks the credibility of the documents. It also uh, is advocating that there are uh, points of conflict within the writing, so the the Bible is not verbally inspired. It's taking a very low view, if a view at all, of verbal inspiration. It's saying there are contradictions and problems within the Bible, and they go to these passages, and rather than trying to harmonize the evidence, they say, well, you know, Genesis 1 was written by one scribe, and Genesis 2 was written by a different scribe, and there are conflicts between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 because two different people wrote them, and they just kind of mashed them up together, and this is evidence that the Bible's not inspired. Uh, This is what's known as higher criticism. If you want to read a really good intro, uh, brief, to the point, clear, and I think gives a good answer to it, I recommend you read Richard P. Belcher Jr., his commentary on Genesis. It's part of the Focus on the Bible Commentary series. His name is Richard P. Belcher Jr. And in his introduction, he gives a brief introduction to the Documentary Hypothesis, identifies who the players are, where this went, and what the problems are, gives you a brief answer. So that kind of introduces you to the, to the thought it's not going to chase down all the rabbits, obviously, but it's it's interesting little intro there if you want some more reading on that. If you want a pretty lengthy answer to the documentary hypothesis, I would suggest you might consider reading From Paradise to the Promised Land, by T. Desmond Alexander in the first six chapters of that book. He deals with a documentary hypothesis and pokes a lot of holes in it. Um, Wellhausen was a really bad guy in the sense that he changed for about 20 or 30 years completely how people did Old Testament research and the lens that they were looking at the Bible through. He really lowered the level of verbal inspiration down to where people rejected that quite a bit for a time. One of the things that's interesting, Wellhausen had to admit, was that he gave up his position as being a professor because he had gone into the academic field to teach at a seminary, and he was realizing that the students who were coming out of his class were not prepared to become preachers at all. And he realized that his teaching had an effect on them. And that's not no surprise. I mean, what you believe affects how you operate in life. And if you don't believe that the Bible... Is the inspired word of God, you're not going to live that way, you're not going to preach it that way, and it will have a direct correlation. So he has had a lasting impact on the world of biblical research, but thankfully we're kind of coming out of that era. A couple other writers I, I would introduce you to. Uh, there's a guy by the name of Stephen Moyes, or Steve Moyes. Steve Moyes has written quite a bit on the New Testament use of the Old Testament. Uh, he's a dangerous guy in that field. Uh, he doesn't believe that. He believes that the New Testament writers rip passages out of context, that they assert new meaning into the Old Testament that was never there to begin with, that they have used it to prop up the arguments that they want to make without any ground for that whatsoever. And it's very problematic reading. I've tried to do a, quite a bit of reading recently in, in the New Testament use of the Old Testament to better my understanding and teaching ability from the Old Testament and making it relevant to the Christian life. And in doing that, Stephen Moyes, I came across him, and he was very problematic in most every aspect of his writing, and I just want to make people aware of that. If you decide to kind of get into that field of study, he's a guy to be aware of and uh, just avoid. Two other guys before we're done. These are both from a Church of Christ background. The first one you may be familiar with, you've heard of him. He's, uh, he's been kind of out of the limelight a little bit for a while now, but his name is Edward Fudge. Edward Fudge tried to destroy the concept of hell. It's known as annihilationism. Uh, He believed that the concept of hell was unfair and unjust, and he's written quite a bit. Uh, He left the Churches of Christ. He became kind of a a unity and diversity, big megachurch movement type of guy, and he was advocating that there is no such thing as hell. This made quite a stir amongst Churches of Christ for quite a while. Uh, He was almost entirely rejected. Unfortunately, Homer Haley, at the end of his life, when he was in his late 90s, advocated a position of annihilationism as well. It was quite disappointing, but Fudge is the main culprit. He was a student of Carl Ketcherside's at one time. Um, I'm not going to blame Carl Ketcherside for Fudge's annihilationism, but anyway, there's kind of a historical tie there. Uh, uh, there's been quite a bit of good material written in opposition to annihilationism, but one book um, that you might consider checking out, it's a rather lengthy read, it's not going to be a light read, but it's written by D.A. Carson, it's called The Gagging of God, and it's dealing with what people consider as some moral atrocities in the Bible, and that one of those being hell and the concept of eternal punishment, and The Gagging of God by D.A. Carson, I think it's got some really good material combating annihilationism last guy I want to share with you, also from a Church of Christ background, is um, Mr. Don Preston. Don Preston is still alive. I don't know how many books he has written. He's written a ton. If you have listened to the episodes that we I recorded where I interviewed my dad, Brother George Batty, uh, he talked a bit at length regarding Don Preston. Anyway, Don Preston believes in the AD 70 position. He believes that at the destruction of Jerusalem, the Lord returned for his final judgment, and everything was, was completed at that point. The whole New Testament was written before 87. Everything's complete. There's nothing left to be fulfilled. And this this destroys the concept of a bodily resurrection at the end of time and the heavenly heavenly realm and state. Uh, anyway, he's, he's a guy that you need to be aware of. He has written, again, a ton of material, had a big influence among uh, certain branches of Churches of Christ, and someone that you need to be aware of. We could spend quite a bit of time going through a number of different authors. Uh, some of these authors might seem arbitrary or random. I've tried to pick some from a uh, kind of a wide variety of backgrounds in case our, our listeners read in a wide variety of areas. Uh, these are some guys that are pretty popular. Uh, quite a few of them, if not all of them, are held in pretty high regard in their fields. If you begin to study in areas that overlap with, for instance, Calvinism, you're going to encounter Piper and MacArthur and Stott. If you're going to read in the Old Testament, you're going to encounter Golden Gay and Brigham Inn, uh Stephen Moyes and Wellhausen at some point. If you're going to read about narrative criticism, you're going to encounter Robert Altair and uh, John Collins somewhat. If you're going to read in the field of creation, evolution, theos- uh, that type of field, you're going to encounter Hugh Ross and John Collins. Um, these are some wide variety of areas, but some guys that are, I believe, very dangerous and have had a tremendous impact for evil in the fields in which they deal. If you have some guys that you would like to add to the list, or if you'd like to know more about this, or if, for instance, you have a subject in mind that you would like to hear on a particular subject, who are some guys to avoid, you can send us those questions or comments to christianresearcher at gmail.com. We'll be happy to take a look at your questions or your comments and try to include that in some of our future episodes. Thanks for listening. Uh, be sure to, sure to turn in uh, tune in again next week for another episode. We appreciate you listening. I encourage you if you haven't already subscribe to the episode, to the podcast at iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Podbean, and um, share the program with your friends and your neighbors so that we can grow our audience. Thanks for listening. Have a great week, and Lord, we'll catch you next
0: week. Better is our sacrifice. He He paid the price, the price. He paid it all upon the cross. No longer bound by sin or with eternal loss, He took my sin and washed it away. I was immersed in that watery grave. I heard that gospel call because he paid it all.